The Game of Zen explores the often overlooked ways in which professional, personal, and spiritual growth are interrelated. We dive deep into the life teachings of the Buddha and the mindfulness practices of Zen, revealing how they can help us dramatically expand our possibilities for wholehearted work, life, and play. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Game of Zen podcast. Today we will be furthering our journey through the Eightfold Path and we will be talking about the ethical and moral dimensions, which are right speech, right action, and right livelihood. So, hey, Paul, how's it going today? It's going good. Going good. Good to see you, Scott. You too, man. So let's start off with right speech. Um, why is this relevant and tell us more about it? Yeah, well, th these um, ethical dimension of the Eightfold Path, which is speech, action, and livelihood, it's kind of where the, the rubber meets the road. It's where we're, we're engaging with the world in a way that, that creates karma. Um, karma is created through intentional action of body, mouth, and thought, right? The things we say, the things we do, and even the things we think. So we're, we're now, now we're in the place where we're engaging with the world with some level of intentionality and we're creating, we're creating karma through, through that activity. So it's where the, you know, where the rubber meets the road. We've talked about the um, insight dimension of the full path, which included view and intention a couple of episodes ago. And that's where kind of we're setting our mindset for how we engage with the world. And here's where we're actually doing it. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's important stuff. <laughs> sure is. And it, I, I really do like how it all fits together. You know, once you dive deeper into all these dimensions, they, they interlock with each other. Um, so that's great. And, and so let's focus then on right speech and what it means. And what I, you know, have learned, it, it does mean something different for every person, you know, for ourselves and every person in our lives. I've been trying to practice right speech a lot and I, I think about it, um, but how do we know whether it's right speech and how do we know if the other person is doing the same? Yeah, good, good question. Um, as we have been discussing with overall with respect to the right the eightfold path and what we mean by right you know just to remind ourselves about that right um doesn't mean morally good it actually means wholesome is probably a better way of looking at it it's something that's in alignment with our fundamental reality of our interconnectedness our interdependence and respectful of our wholeness, that we're all in this together, that we have an effect on each other, and that um, we can have positive effects and good effects on, on others and on, on ourselves. So that's what right means, it's just kind of in alignment with that, with that reality of who we are at, at the deepest level. So speech, is our speech wholesome? Well, what does that mean? There's kind of some, cueing questions or reflection questions that we can ask to try to discern whether whether it is right or not and ones that i like are is what we're saying is it true is it kind and is it necessary 
to, to speak what you're speaking. Those are, those are a kind of, a, you know, mirrors or reflections that are one way of asking whether something is right speech or not. What do you, what do you think about those? Well, I, you know, I, I agree. And I think that it's also just something that, you know, you have to look at for yourself. Like, you know, you, you want to put out right speech in everyone that you're dealing with, but then there's also what else is the other person saying? So is that true? Is it kind, you know, is it necessary? And, and so I find myself like in a business meeting or just in a personal relationship and I, I, someone says something and I'm like, that's not necessary or that's not kind. And so I'm now looking at other speech, you know, more uh, with a more discerning eye. I also think, you know, in the public eye, you know, there's people in the media and the news or sports figures or entertainment figures. Like, how do we take our own version of right speech and then apply it to the other people in our life? Yeah, well, I'll I'll say that we really should always just be maintaining our own self discernment around it. Always, right? It's always about ourselves. We should focus on that, and only when we have a good sense that we're, we've got an understanding of it ourselves can you know you you really look out and and uh, feel confident about assessing other people's right. And and then it might be, of course, all right. Say you. Um, I mean, there, there's so much, so much that we would consider not right speech, <laughs> you know, in social media and, and media, you know, mass media, and even in, you know, conversations in our businesses and perhaps even with our friends group. If we use these litmus tests, right, necessary, and, or true, necessary, and kind, we might find it lacking. Um, but then what do we say about it or what do we do about it, right? It might not be kind to actually point that out to somebody else, right? So I think it's, um, you know, it's valuable to hold these questions and to assess. I, th I think um, my experience with these questions is um, the, the, you get the answers actually pretty quickly, right? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? It's like, you don't, you don't have to really analyze it too much. You, you kind of get the, uh, the, the gist of it pretty quick. Yeah. And you bring up social media and I was thinking of like cancel culture mm. and, you know, there's people now, you know, some people just shouldn't tweet, you know, and sometimes people get in trouble for their tweets or things they say in interviews. And then, you know, their careers are, are sidelined in some ways. And I think that's a challenge in this day of age that we're in of information being everywhere. You really have to be careful what you say. And there's, you know, you could say one thing and uh, half the people would think it's great and half the people are going to think it's terrible. And so you have to be very careful. And this goes also when you're in a, in a business environment. Um, so I wanted to give an example of using right speech in my daily activities. Uh, I, I try and help entrepreneurs raise capital. And, you know, I coach them on how to do a pitch and what they should write in their pitch deck and what they should say to potential investors. And so part of what I coach them on is like, OK, this is what you say to get someone excited about investing in your company. And I think the more that I think about that, the better I can help people when they are raising capital. Right. So so that helps out. Uh, one other thing that I do lately is it really helps being a good listener. And I want to talk a little bit about listening. Sometimes at the beginning of a meeting, I'll just look at the people on my Zoom uh, screen and I'll take a few deep breaths early in the meeting and I'll look around at the people and I'll think about what they're saying very carefully. And then before I say something, I'm going to think about 
what's right speech in this situation. And it might be different for the four or five people that are in the meeting. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you work with like uh, observing body language and thinking about how to say something before you say it? Yeah, well, the first thing I want to say is, is how beautiful that is that you just expressed that you have the intention of engaging in right speech, right? So you're 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 starting from that place. Um, most most people don't have that. You know, you you tell them, oh, I don't think that's right speech. So it's like, what the heck is right speech? It's like, I don't I don't care about right speech. What the hell are you laying your trip on me? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. So the first thing to point out is how you have the intention to engage in right speech, right? You 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 have that as as a vow or an intention and then then you're asking that question most people don't have that so they're not really even judging themselves by that um so you you um you want to be assessing whether you know whether it's kind whether it's necessary and whether it's true um but you also want to be assessing you know what the what the effect is on on other people right so if you have if you have the intention of being those things and then you have the intention of having a positive effect okay because you can you can speak something true you can maybe even speak something you know kind and and necessary but if you feel like it's going to turn turn the team in a, in a bad direction <laughs> you know maybe they're not ready to hear it um, that, that can also be part of the equation. And like you say, your reading of other people's um, vibe, you know, the readiness, say, of the group is where your um, practice of right speech, that's the material for your practice uh, of right speech, is to see. Now, you, you gave the example of, you know, coaching people to express their company to an investment group, right? That's... Um, you don't have to worry too much about, I guess, you know, body language and such. You've got a very crafted, you know, message that you're giving. So you can really pay attention to exactly what words you want to use and what claims you want to make. And um, that that helps. Yeah, there's, there's an expression in venture, you know, bet on the jockey, not the horse. Yeah. So, you know, what the per when I'm listening to someone pitch me on an investment, I'm very carefully listening to their words and what they're saying. And, and over this happens over months, you know, before we invest to really understand them. I do want to switch to some personal. And this is a recurring theme in our podcast here is that these things apply equally to our professional and personal lives. So my example personally is, you know, my, my children are both in their 20s now my daughters and this, the speech, my speech has changed a lot over the years. You know, when they were little, there were things that, you know, the way we talk to our little children changes as they get through high school and college. And, you know, now they're adults and now we sit around and have more adult like conversations and I can speak more freely about things. And I think that's, um, you know, it's, I've, I've been very careful about speech with them forever and now, though, I'm, I'm less I'm, I'm not as careful because I think they can handle more of it. Even we could be talking about the world or whatever. And, you know, so it does change as your kids get older. So what about you, Paul? Like, uh, give us a personal example. Yeah, well, I've, I've practiced uh, actually a, a, a modality that was created a number of decades ago called nonviolent communication, which was created and developed by a fellow named Marshall Rosenberg. Um, he's got a book called Nonviolent Communication that, that we'll give you more details on. 
but the working working with uh, nonviolent communication in the context of my relationships and with my marriage with my wife Aria has been probably the best uh, practice in developing right speech for myself. And I can give you some of the basics of that is that it nonviolent communication is, is reflecting that a violent communication is when you're saying that the other person made you feel a certain way. <laughs> okay. That it's their responsibility and they take the blame. They have the blame for, for something that happened to me, particularly a feeling that I have. Right. And there's a very kind of subtle but meaningful shift between saying, you made me angry when you did that to I felt angry when you did that. And then you take the ownership of it. Um, it's, it's a little tricky to kind of extend this into a business context because um, but it is actually very powerful to do it. Um, to really reflect that, well, this is what's up for me around this. And I'm not, I'm not going to impute anything to you like saying you wanted to piss me off or you wanted to betray me or you wanted to scuttle my project, right? I'm not going to go there. But I am going to say, you know, I felt unsupported here. I felt undercut. I felt sub subverted. I felt these ways when you did that. Okay, so I'll just that's a little detour into the business application, but in the relationship application, it's incredibly powerful because as soon as we impute blame or responsibility to the other person, then their defenses come up and they start doing the same thing to you. And at that point, you're in arg argumentative mode and you're defending your positions. But if you really just share vulnerably around how you felt, when that person said something or did something, then if they've got a similar kind of consciousness, you can start to unwind that. And then there's a couple of other steps where you take where you take that, and I'll say them briefly because it's really quite powerful, is so, okay, now that you've said, when you said that, I felt this way. Now, what do you want to communicate to the other person? You communicate in the terms of needs and desires. I want you to do this or I need you to do this in order for me to be okay, you know, moving forward with this situation. This is what I'm needing from you. Okay. Are you able to give this to me? And then the other person has a chance to say, I am able to give it to you, or I'm not able to give it to you, or I'm not willing to give it to you. <laughs> and then you can, you can have a response to that. Okay. Yeah. But it's a very authentic form of communication that can, unwind arguments and turn it into very deep work with each other. That's fantastic. I love that. And by the way, the book is called A Language of Life, Life-Changing Tools for Healthy Relationships, um, Nonviolent Communication Guides. So definitely highly recommend that one. Okay, so we've covered right speech. Let's move to right action. What is it and how do we recognize it? So the, the formal definition of right action is um, abstaining from harming living beings, um, stealing, engaging in sexual misconduct, lying, and indulging in intoxicants. These are kind of the first five of the precepts of the, you know, grave precepts that we take as Buddha. So right action is, is not doing these harmful or unwholesome things that we, that we consider to be unreflective of our fundamental nature you know, interdependent with all beings. Um, 
So, but also it, it does depend that that's kind of something of a literal and a strict, you know, definition is to say of, of abstaining from harming or, in, or stealing and these things. There, there's something like a, a literal interpretation to that. And we have to have a more nuanced and contextual, you know, view of these things, right action. So a lot of it is based on, on our intentions, right? How we see um, wholesome activity happening, right? And where where we feel we're being self-centered versus having um, having a bigger a bigger picture in mind. So I'm thinking about you know the the movie Wall Street with uh, Gordon Gecko, right? Like he actually believed greed is good, right? He kind of he kind of put that out there that like, this is a this is a general social good, and so acting in his self-interest in a certain way was right action for him, okay? Now, would we, would we consider that right action? Um, I don't think we would. Yeah, right. In fact, I know we wouldn't because, right. you know, actually we identify greed as one of the main poisons that the, that the Buddha talked about mm -hmm. that produces suffering just by its very nature, self-centered greed, acquisitiveness, you know, greed produce, produces suffering. So, you know, you and I would look on that and say, hmm, really? Well, um, let's see how that works out, right? <laughs> yep. and, uh, and, and how does it work out? <laughs> it, it doesn't work out well. And actually, one of the quotes from that movie, Gecko says, I am not a destroyer of company. I am a liberator of them. Okay, and so in the minds of all of his employees and of those employees and those companies, he was cruel and cold hearted. In his view, his actions were justified by his worldview. Um, also, towards the end of the movie, he was arrested for insider trading. And the other guy, Bud Fox, you know, he was he was conducting this greed with Gecko for the whole movie. And then he really realized it was wrong and he decided to take another action which is wear a wire and get the guy in trouble because he knew that it wasn't right and so he ends up in the movie and as the hero at the end but he was doing the same thing during the, the most of the film so i think it's kind of interesting it's a great example of the different view that you have will dictate whether you think it's right action or not yeah exactly and then and then we can look at that view if things go awry um as as it did you know for him um you we we, we can kind of reassess the view yeah <laughs> and then and then expand our view of right action from there yeah and i'm always trying to get better at this i i, I frequently look back at situations that happen uh, in my life whether work or, or personal and i realize i could have handled it a better way uh, monday morning quarterback i believe is the term that uh is used a lot and so how do we reckon and with that and change ourselves to become better at right action. Yeah, I think we, we do look at the consequences of our action and we also look at the motivations uh, for our actions. So if we, if, we, if we look at ourselves and sometimes it does take some real honest reflection, you know, am I, am I trying to prove myself right you know, by doing this, is that's what is that what is carrying me forward here? Um, am I trying to succeed, you know, at all costs for my personal success? 
you know, or do I have any view of the collective well-being or even social well-being? You know, what 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 really am I doing here? Just a real honest assessment. And a lot of us, you know, are motivated by um, having our ideas about ourselves and the world, you know, be confirmed. <laughs> we want to be successful in a certain way or we want to be right. A lot of our actions are kind of motivated by that. And that's why somebody like, uh, well, a lot, of, a lot of actions that are done in the political sphere mm-hmm. are done with, a, with a, a very firmly held idea of what's right and what's wrong. There's a, there's a quote from, uh, he's a spiritual psychologist, um, John Wellwood, but it, it, it's been a, something of a watchword for me for a long time here. And he said, all idealism is a form of violence. Mm. Um, and I, I kind of include in that all ideology is a form of violence. You know, an ideology is kind of an ideal order of things or, or way system, an ideal system of the way things should be, you know, an ideal of capitalism or an ideal of socialism or an ideal of whatever, whatever it is. Um, you're doing violence to the fundamental, you know, unknowability and interconnectedness and flow of the universe. So whenever we we base our actions on this view of how things should be according to this ideology, we're doing violence to reality itself. And reality itself is made up of people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so really, are we doing violence to people? And we could even be doing violence to ourselves when we're when we're acting with a view towards that. So if we if we actually reflect on our actions mm-hmm. and our motivations. And we really see, am I doing this based on my view of what is right in an abstract sense, not what's right in this situation? Mm-hmm. A kind of space opens up where we can where we can work with and change and perhaps adjust our actions. Yeah, that's really great, Paul. And I, I also think about for certainly self-reflection, and this is where meditation is is hugely important. And um, you know, we the more we look at ourselves and reflect. Uh, the more we can work through these things. But I, I sometimes, you know, I, I have doubt about things that happen. And and so I, when I'm doing my reflection, I think about, oh, I should have done that differently or I should have invested in a different company or whatever. Uh, so how do we how do we draw the line between self-doubt and self-reflection? Yeah, they're, they're two very different things, although they, they appear like they have the same form. The self-doubt is a it's it's a it's it's actually it's a belief that's posing as a question. <laughs> the question is, you know, what, maybe what what could I have done better, or uh, what's what's wrong with me? But but the belief there is that there's something wrong with me, or I or, or I fucked up, or I'm not good enough. Mm-hmm. Actually, there there's actually a, a belief, a limiting belief inside of self doubt. If the question is really sincerely, what could I have done better? What were, what were the consequences of this action? What were my intentions? Okay, and then honestly asking the question and honestly assessing the answers. That's self-reflection. That's mm-hmm. that's that's a that's a very vibrant living thing that we that we do want to do. Yeah, this is also where the the noble truths, the four noble truths, and the eightfold path are especially useful here because. Just recognizing that and and reflecting on it on the actions is really helpful in 
getting past them and, and having a more enlightenment because, you know, you sort of understand why did I act a certain way or why did that other person act a certain way? And, and, and it made me feel something, whether it's doubt or confidence or whatever. Um, and so some of the, the like the bigger examples that I've had are, are investments where I've made that haven't worked out or the companies did the wrong thing and they, you know, they didn't do as well. And so there's there's big examples of companies. But then there's also minor examples like people not responding to emails, not returning phone calls, showing up late for meetings. So there's a lot of actions that come into the business week that, you know, you could say are right or not right. Um, so how do you kind of reckon with that and, and make sure that you're on the right track? Well, the, the, the latter example, what you call the small examples are actually the big examples when it when it comes to right action, because this is the this is the texture of your humanity in the day to day with your interactions with other people. So so to be mindful about communicating with others and being timely and being authentic and being kind and doing the things that help others and help yourself ver versus the things that are protecting your territory, uh, you know, and being being protective and critical and perhaps destructive. That's, that's the real terrain for right action. When you talk about decisions like investment decisions or even say job decisions, right? Taking a job or hiring and firing, you don't really know, um, you know, you don't really know necessarily you know your intention, you can control your intention, and you can control, you know, what you're, um, what you're looking for, and what you're striving for, and to take in the most, you know, to not be biased in your decisions. But ultimately, you know, whether an, whether an intention, uh, sorry, whether an investment works out or not, doesn't reflect on whether it was right action or not, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Taking a job, doesn't necessarily reflect on right action. Now, it might have been a poor decision and it didn't work out the way you wanted it to, but, you know, you never really know uh, whether, how, how things are going to pan out on your, on your path. You know, sometimes you do a project and it doesn't work out and it wasn't meant to work out because, you know, you didn't have product market fit or yeah. whatnot. So, uh, so you roll with that and you just move on to the next one. Um, so you, yeah, it's, it, it isn't, don't, don't mistake right action for, you know, what it takes to make a million dollars. Thank you. That helps me for sure, Paul. Um, I wanted to give another example about right action and helping people. You brought up that. Um, so I'm involved with a wonderful charity called the divine nine open. It's a charity golf tournament that we put on every year here in Philadelphia. And people come together and raise money for a great cause. Cause is actually called Bringing Hope Home. Give them a little plug. And they pay bills for families dealing with cancer. So every year we get 180 or so golfers together. We raise a lot of money. And the, the collective feeling of all these people doing this right action is really wonderful. I, I love this not the nonprofit space. And just the feeling that you get being around that many people that are there for a good cause it's really wonderful. And, you know, I, I love to do more of those things. And so there's there's a, a way for us to come together as as a society and a community to do right action to help other people. Mm -hmm. So how about you? Any personal examples of right action? Well, I've tried to put, you know, my uh, my Buddhist vows into, into practice over the years. And you know, I took the Buddhist vows when I was in my late 20s. And it's been a uh, 
I, I was terrified, you know, when I took them because I was breaking them all every day. <laughs> I felt all of them, you know, every, every day. So it's been a it's it's been a you know a decades long path of kind of honing my practice of right action. You know, one is we have a precept of not abusing intoxicants. So I'd say you know I I I did abuse you know alcohol in my twenties and. And I had a I had a dependency on it that was not very wholesome, and it it took me you know years to kind of get in alignment with with that with that particular action you know regular action to the point where um, you know I barely drink now, and I, I I drank quite a bit you know in earlier phases of my life, so to um, you know come and in, come into a real integrity with with that has been a has been a huge um gift to me it's been it's been it's been huge in my own life is to kind of get right with with that and it's it's helped everything in my life my work my relationships my creativity everything that's awesome and speaking of right uh, of intoxicants let's talk about right livelihood so as you know i'm an investor in the cannabis space nice segue <laughs> Perfect transition there. So, and and the reason why I want to bring this up is because cannabis has been illegal for a long time, as you know, and our, our government still classifies it as a Schedule One drug. Um, I've always felt, though, yes, it's an intoxicant. It's also medicine, and I've done a lot of research, and there's a lot of stories out there about it how it actually does help people. And I don't believe it should ever have been illegal. So I decided to get into the space about eight years ago. And in, but I knew that a lot of people like didn't look at it the same way I did. So for a, a long while, I didn't tell that many people about it. I didn't put it up on my LinkedIn profile uh, because I didn't know what the reaction was. I felt strongly about it, but others may not have thought the same way. In that time period now, there it's, it's legal in a lot of places and everything is changing, the mentality around cannabis. And so I, you know, that was my own interpretation of it. But then there's what society looks at it, you know, so it's it's kind of tricky sometimes. Right. It is tricky sometimes. Yeah. And it, it, but I think you're asking all the right questions with with real sincerity and uh, honesty. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with your assessment with respect to the cannabis industry. Now, if you were if you said the same thing and tried to make the same argument for the cocaine distribution, I, I would disagree. Right. <laughs> you know, if you were to say the same thing about, say, psilocybin, uh, I would agree. Yeah. Um, and we probably have a whole episode or two on, yes. you know, this that that subject. Right? Yes. We, we can get into that. But, um, yeah, you know, there, there's a famous Zen story about right livelihood that that brings out you know the, these um this terrain um there's a zen student and he the only work he could get was as a butcher um working in a butcher shop and he felt really terrible about this because he, he he wanted to practice non-killing uh he was a vegetarian himself i believe as the story goes and and he asked talked to his zen teacher about it he said can i possibly do it is it right livelihood to do this and the Zen teacher was very, very direct. And he said, oh, sure, sure. Chop, chop, <laughs> chop, chop. Okay, so there's, there's, there's a, a lot in that, in that response. You know, he's basically saying, if, if you do something wholeheartedly, you know, really apply a, a, your, your mind of meditation, you know, full absorption 
in respectfully and digni dig with a dignified way, you know, treating and preparing the carcass of this animal for your community, you know, that can really be right livelihood. My, my uncle was a butcher his whole life. Um, he ran mar my whole, my whole maternal uh, mother's line, you know, had markets, these Italian markets, you know, out in, out in Connecticut. And so there's actually a number of butchers in my lineage. And um, it was, it was a, a very, um, you know, a very dignified and honorable profession to, to prepare, you know, food stuffs for the, you know, meat based uh, food for, for the community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can really see, see that aspect of it too. So, you know, th that, that plays into it, you know, it isn't quite a cut and dry sort of assessment. The, another factor there is that this fellow, he couldn't get any other jobs, right? So that's a factor in it too. You know, what, what you, what you have available to you to support yourself and, and your family. Now there, there are some, you know, what I would consider hard nose <laughs> with respect to right livelihood. Okay. You know, cocaine dealer being one of them, arms, arms merchant being another, you know, um, when you get into serving, you know, certain like industrial blank industrial complexes, you know, I think you, I think you have to look carefully, you know, some people might feel like serving the social media industrial complex, you know, it's like, they're just not going to be a part of that because they feel it's deleterious. That's, that's I, I would say, a personal decision, you know, where you come out on that. Um, serving the military, you know, might be another type of assessment. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a personal example. One of my first careers in technology was with a company that friends had founded, and they had a $30 million contract from the Department of Defense. Now, I had a decision. I, I had just taken the vows. I was in my late 20s at this point, and I, I really asked myself, wow, is this a company I want to work for? And as it turns out, all of the systems were non-combat related. They were scheduling activities. They were running bases. No combat, no combat, no weaponry at all involved with it. And that was a big part of my decision. I decided I would work for the company. But if they were working on weapon systems, my, my, my um, decision would have been different and I wouldn't have worked for the company. Yeah. That's a great example. And I was also just thinking of my past as a, in the political advertising too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, but we won't get into politics anymore on this episode. That's enough. Uh, this is a great discussion, Paul. I loved it. Um, I really like the butcher story too. And, you know, I would love to encourage our listeners to reflect on their own careers or vocations and really think about all of these elements of the eightfold path because they figure into every single day. So, Paul, now we'd uh, love to go into a short meditation to close out this episode. Okay, very good. Well, I'll. I, I guess I want to. I want to encourage people to just take away a uh, an opportunity to reflect on both speech and action, um, with with the template of is it kind, is it true, and is it necessary? You know, that's something you can take into your into your days. And, and really to apply that. So, so that, that, that's my kind of ongoing med meditation, you know, for taking it into your life. In terms of just a reflection to bring in right now, let's, let's um, take uh, a few moments and reflect on your livelihood, right? Reflect on your livelihood and ask yourself what, um, 
you are supporting in terms of your livelihood? Is this something that you want to support in terms of the overall you know, mission of your organization, whatever it is that you're doing? Um, is this something that you want to support? Connect with you know, the consequences of the, uh, the business that you're working for. What are, what are the consequences? What are the near-term consequences? That means you know, the people it's supporting and the immediate clients that it's supporting. And then what are the secondary and long-term consequences and uh, effects of the work that you do every day? Okay, just uh, we'll take a few moments and reflect on that aspect of your life. Okay, you can come out of the meditation and if you had any insights, you may want to write them down. Um, these types of meditations, I always want to hear what people, you know, come up with. So, Well, one thing I came up with was that you're really good at uncomplicating things and, and making them practical. This is why you're a great coach, Paul, because you bring these, you know, these things up and you, you it's easy to apply them and think about it. And the more that we've been talking and working together, it's it's gotten easier for me to identify things as right speech, right action, and then correct myself and become better at it. So I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm glad. Awesome. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, this is another really good episode. Um, we encourage you as always to sign up for the Zen at Work newsletter. Contact Sensei Paul to schedule a discovery session for coaching and subscri subscribe and comment on our podcast wherever you get them. So thank you very much for listening and have a great day. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this exploration into Zen Buddhism and its transformative influence on work and life. We hope you'll subscribe, share, and comment wherever you get your podcasts. May your journey be one of continuous growth and mindful living. From all of us here at Game of Zen, wishing you peace and prosperity on your path ahead.